This reading is taken from the book of John. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, and place my fingers in the marks of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. morning we're continuing to celebrate Easter obviously with the songs of the resurrection that we got to sing this morning Um, and one of the questions that comes up when you start thinking about resurrection from the dead and this history altering event that we celebrate is where are things headed what what difference does it make that Jesus was raised from the dead and what does that have to do with our day-to-day lives so we're going to talk about that this morning and it may be some uh, things that sound new to your ears. We'll try to unpack this scripture and others and show how it kind of all fits together. But I'd be glad to um, point you to some other resources if some of these things are new for you this morning, the way they were for me a few years ago at Covenant Seminary. Um, uh, think about it like this. We'll try to get at it. If you think about what your focus is and your attention is when you are preparing to leave and go on a trip versus when you're preparing to host a group of people at your home. When for us, our family, we've got four kids, 11 down to five. And if we're getting ready to go on a trip, our whole focus is on let's get everybody up, ready, packed in the car. And let's just, by the time we get in the car and on the way, we're just spent. Because all our efforts have been on me playing Tetris with the suitcases in the back seat of the car. Uh, making sure everyone's used the bathroom and got the, the waters that they need and packed snacks and all this kind of stuff. And so the house kind of gets secondary attention, right? If it's a mess, that's okay because our focus is on getting in the car and getting out the door. Versus if we have some of you over for lunch. Let me tell you what will be happening the few minutes before you arrive at our house to, uh, to have lunch with us. There will be vacuum cleaners going. There will be commands being shouted of kids to pick up the things on their floor that they haven't done, even though we've told them five times to do it, and beds to be made up, and set out the preparations for the food, and oh yeah, I've got to run to the store and get some ice because we forgot that, and we don't have an ice maker, all this kind of stuff. All to get ready 
for hosting someone who's coming. So the focus is actually here. It's the house. It's now because we've got guests coming over. Those two views um, are pretty uh, good descriptions, I guess we could say, of the two views that people have for where this world is headed. You may be like me who grew up thinking that where things are headed is we're all going to, this world's going to be destroyed and we're going to all go to this heaven, this ethereal, ideal place somewhere. And so it really doesn't matter what happens here and what we put our hands to on a day-to-day basis because it's all going to burn anyway. Versus uh, the view of scriptures that says, no, actually God is coming here. He hasn't given up on this world or the works of his hands and he's bringing heaven to earth. He's creating this new, renewed heavens and earth. And so we need to do all that we can to get ready to receive the coming king. I believe the scripture teaches that second view, which may or may not be the view that you've been taught or hold to. So let's look and see how this story actually of this uh, doubting Thomas, who he's come to be known, actually gives us a clue as to how this is and why that's the, the view of scripture. The the, the the, uh, the basic statement we're going to unfold is this statement. Jesus' bodily resurrection is the ground of our hope for tangible restoration. Jesus' bodily resurrection is the ground of our hope for tangible restoration. First point is this. It was a bodily resurrection. And that may sound simple to you, but uh, that's not a given as far as what we believe and how, how we act on a, on a regular basis. But it really was a bodily resurrection. Um, I believe Thomas gets kind of a bad rap. When we think of Thomas, we always put that adjective in front of him, right? He's doubting Thomas. And the picture we have of him is this kind of cynical, glass half empty kind of guy that was looking for a reason not not to believe in Jesus. Prove it to me was kind of the, the attitude that we think he had. And yet... I don't know that that holds true when we look at actually the stories of him. What, what do we know about Thomas? From other passages that we read, we, we, we see, we get the picture of him as this loyal realist uh, who may misinterpret Jesus and may be a bit confused most of the time. But deep down, he's this guy that's deeply committed to Jesus. He's a realist, but he's a loyal realist. There's another story that Jesus has with him interacting with Thomas before he's, he goes to the cross where Jesus says, hey, I'm, le- I'm, I'm about to leave you. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And you know, he predicts what is, what's gonna happen. He says, I, but I leave in order to go prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may come and be also. And Thomas looks at him and is like, what are you talking about, Jesus? This doesn't fit our, our mold of the Messiah um, at, at all, but how will we know the way unless you tell us? And Jesus says to him, what? I am the way and the truth and the life. And Thomas is like, what are you talking about? Just show us, if you just lay it out for me, I'll follow you. I want to follow you. I'm, a, I'm loyal to you, but I'm also a realist. Give me something tangible. So that, that's kind of who, who Thomas is. From his uh, reaction to other disciples, we learn that he's not going to be easily swayed or convinced um, by men because he realizes the tendency for men to be duped. Uh, there's possibly a little bit of what Jesus condemns uh, earlier in John's gospel of looking for a sign, but ultimately he's resolute that he had seen Jesus die. He'd seen him enter the grave. And so now he's got to see him resurrected in order to, to, uh, to uh, undo what he'd seen as far as the death goes. Let me just tell you, that's normal. It's not normal for people to be raised from the dead. Right? It's normal to want to see someone and have proof if they've been raised from the dead. And we see that when we look at the other disciples. 
because Thomas gets a bad rap, but they were just like him. When you look at the other disciples, they believed as, just like Thomas did because they'd seen. Physical evidence was the crucial item that moved them to belief. In Luke 24, it's a great passage, starting in verse 36 of Luke 24, that says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Again, doors locked, and Jesus is suddenly among them. And he says to them, peace be to you, which is always funny to me because the first words out of Jesus' mouth as a resurrected Christ is, don't freak out, peace be with you, which that makes sense. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. So I don't know if you believe in ghosts or not, but they did. They thought they saw a spirit. And he says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then I love this phrase. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they're grabbing each other and saying, is this real? Do you believe this? And while they're saying this, he says to them, have you got anything to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish, which I'm sure he would have preferred deep southern fried. But they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he takes it, and he eats it right there in front of them. As if to say, no, for real. This is a real body. I'm, I'm really alive. They believe the same reason Thomas believes. Because it was a bodily resurrected Jesus standing right there in front of them, talking to them and eating fish. What do we know about Jesus? How does he respond to Thomas and the disciples? Well, we find him surprisingly inviting and accommodating. In verse 27, I love this phrase. He says, do not be an unbeliever, Thomas, but be a believer. In other words, he says, okay, makes sense to me that you would doubt. You're born in sin. You don't understand uh, what I've been telling you. And you saw me die on a cross. You saw me be buried. So it, it... it makes sense to me that you, you've been an unbeliever, but now you see me. Now you touch me. Now you eat fish with me. No longer be an unbeliever, be a believer now. He's confirming, he's affirming. It's interesting, verse 29 is, is, is I think, maybe a little bit misinterpreted by us. Um, he says, we, we kind of see it as a rebuke, which there may be a hint of that, but we read it like Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have believed. As if he's saying to Thomas, oh, poor Thomas. Have you believed because you've seen me? One day there's going to be a bunch of godly people who actually haven't seen me and going to believe. But I don't know that that's really the context. I, I think it really it fits better if it's read like this. Thomas, you've, you've believed because you've seen me. And now because you've seen me and because this story is going to be recorded for many, many, many other people who will not be alive at the same time that I'm alive because I'm about to sin and go be with my father. But because you've seen me and believed, many, many others are going to read about this and know of this story. And having not seen me, they're going to believe because of your confession, because of what's just happened. Brothers and sisters, Thomas is us. <laughs> He's us saying, no, 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 I'm this is hard to get my mind around. This doesn't happen every day. I don't know if I believe just one account. I don't know if I believe a group of people that may have wanted this to happen. And then Thomas's account is recorded to say, neither did he. And he wasn't gonna settle for anything less than the risen Christ. And so because we haven't, we're not able to see him face to face, but we can believe Thomas's testimony and account and become believers even if we haven't seen him. We missed the point 
if we focus in this passage on whether or not Thomas doubted and what we should do with our doubts. There are passages of scripture that talk about doubts and what to do with them. This is not one of them. The point of this passage is to say Christ is risen. He's risen indeed bodily. He's standing in front of these people and that we can believe in it. You know, uh, those who don't believe in the claims of Christianity get this. They get the fact that everything hangs on the resurrection. One person says it this way. How do you choose between believing in Jesus, Bigfoot, leprechauns, witchcraft, alien abductions, the tooth fairy, gold at the end of the rainbow, or many other assertions that people have made over the course of human history? Faith is like rolling the dice and hoping you've placed your faith in a true proposition. However, if you're still inclined to place faith in an unprovable assertion, I am God, send me money. That's what one person says. In other words, it's... Pick one of these things that may or may not be true. We really don't know, but just hope you pick the right one and it proves true in the end. Mark Twain said this, faith is believing what you know ain't so. In other words, what, what are they saying? They're saying, hey, it, there's no way to know for sure. Just believe in this, this thing and maybe, it, maybe it'll prove true in the end. Versus saying, no, it's true because somebody saw him. Some people touched him. He ate fish with them. He really did rise from the dead. Now, the bigger question is if this is true, which we can believe it is because of Thomas, then what does it mean? What does it mean? That's the second point. Uh, what, what it means is this a ground for our hope. It's the foundations for our hope. Um, hope, as we talk about it on a day-to-day basis, really for us means an abstract thought or a wish that one day things are gonna be like we want them to be. We say things like, we, we hope the Predators make it to the next round of the playoffs. Or I might say, after watching the, the Georgia uh, inter-squad game uh, on Saturday, I hope they're as good as they look against other teams, right? Um, but what we're saying is we wish, that, we, we wish that'll be true. Biblical hope is a tangible guarantee that things are gonna be like God has promised they're gonna be. It's a tangible guarantee, not of, of our wishes coming true, but as things being as God has promised. And so the resurrection is this down payment, this guarantee. If I, if I ask you to go move my car because I'm double parked and you say, well, you got to pay me something. I say, okay, I'll give you $5,000 to go move my car. And you say, great, show me the money. And I pull out my wallet and say, well, actually, I don't have any on me. Then you're like, well, I'm not going to move your car then, right? But if I pull out a wad of hundreds and I say, okay, here's $2,500. i will give you the rest when you get back. And I put the money in my pocket. You know I can deliver on my promise. Because I've given you a down payment. You know that I'm, I have riches of which to deliver. Listen, that's what's going on in the resurrection. Jesus is delivering on the promise of God. It's the down payment. His bodily resurrection is the first fruits of everything else being different. Of all the sad things in the world finally starting to come untrue. Of the reversal of the course of history. And you see it in Thomas's confession, which is one of the most sweet beautiful, full, but simple confessions of who Jesus really is that we have recorded in the Gospels. What does he say? Verse 28. After he sees Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That first phrase, my Lord, is this, is this covenantal language. Now, first of all, that you are, are mine. I belong to you. You belong to me. We have a relationship here. And it's a covenant relationship that points back to the Old Testament covenant promise-keeping God. A God who the, uh, the, the people of Israel knew, who made promises to them, who lived in their midst, who says, I will, you will be my people. I will be your God. You can trust me. I will lead you and guide you 
through the desert. I will deliver you. I will protect you. I will be the, the God that is the same yesterday and today and forever, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, you, Jesus, are that God. He said, you're not only, not only my Lord, but you're, you're my God, which is, is creational language. It's, it's, this, uh, it's this deity language, this, this, um, this supernatural language, this divine providential language that says, you are the same God that created things in the beginning. And if you read the, the book of John, you see that that's how he actually started off his gospel. He says, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then he says, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how he starts off his gospel. And now here at the end of his gospel, in this concluding chapter, uh, he actually tacks on one more to tell about the restoration of Peter. But most scholars believe this was how he intended to conclude his gospel to start with. He's saying, hey, the word, the one that we talked about in chapter one, now in Thomas's account of seeing the risen Lord, of him confessing my Lord and my God, I'm saying to you, that this Jesus is the one that was talked about in chapter one. It's the bookends. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, my Lord, my God. And then he goes in to conclude saying, this book is written. We could write a lot of other things, he says, but this book was written so that you may believe in him and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. In his name, my Lord, my God, this confession. He's saying the trajectory since Genesis three of the course of human history has been sin and the ultimate consequence of death. And now with the resurrection of Jesus, the tangibility of his bodily resurrection, the confession of Thomas, he's saying it's all been reversed. Now things are gonna start working backwards. Now blessing is gonna go as far as the curse is found. All the promises of God are going to come true. The resurrection is a foretaste, the first fruits of the ultimate future in Christ's resurrection Mike Williams says it this way, in Christ's resurrection, we have a picture of the future given before its full arrival. So what we see in Jesus is the start of all things being made new. Now, in our time left, let's talk about what that means. What does it mean that all things are gonna be made new? What, 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 what is that phrase talking about? I'm gonna speed through these passages real quick to give us a picture that all the scripture speaks of this, Okay. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates and it's good. What does he mean by that? It means the structures, the foundations on which God builds the world are good and right and true and never will be shaken. They're never gonna go away. Genesis 3 and 4, sin enters the world, but all sin does is corrupt and distort God's good foundations. If we follow the unfolding scripture, corruption and distortion, they never alter the basic good of the raw materials. It just takes those things in a, in a, in a manward, sinful direction rather than in a direction that, that honors and glorifies God. In Genesis 4, you see Cain's descendants after sin using and, and making and creating and cultivating things, but they use those things for violence and for selfish purposes rather than to honor God and protect each other. And in six, Genesis 6 through 9, things have gotten pretty much as bad as they could get. Every heart, every intention is, is only evil all the time. So God looks down and he purifies, he cleanses the earth. But he destroys in order to preserve. What he hates, sin, is threatening what he loves, his people and his creation. So he washes the earth 
You put limits on how, how bad he'll let things ever get, in a, uh, get again. In a very powerful and disturbing image, the wicked are taken and those under grace are left behind. Genesis 12 comes and God focuses his attention to Abraham and the nation that would come from him. Not, not so that he can give up on the rest of the world, so that, but so that through him, through his family, a seed can come that would reverse the curse and bring salvation to everyone. They're supposed to be a light to the nation so that in them, in this nation of Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And as you follow the rest of the Old Testament story and it develops, God continues to preserve, to promise his people uh, even in the midst of profound wickedness, so that he can bring this heir that will provide their needed salvation. And in the process, people undergo certain judgments, and they're, they're taken away, and the, the remnant it remains and is left behind. Passages like Isaiah 60, which I was, I was going to preach on this morning and, and change gears, but Isaiah 60 and 65, Ezekiel 36, they picture this new heavens and this new earth that will one day um, make all things right. And in some of those passages, you see things, items of culture that God says are to be devoted to destruction. You see them showing up in the city of God. And so what, God, what he means is their, their function has been destroyed. Their function of sinful um, uh, self-exaltation and human pride has been broken and destroyed. And now they're using to speed the children of God to the kingdom of God. They've been changed. They've been cleansed uh, from all impurity and unrighteousness. And then we go to texts like in the New Testament, um, like Matthew 24, where the whole Left Behind book series was made for. And you see that, that maybe this guy who wrote these, these really popular books was mistaken on his underlying assumption. Because you see in verses 36 through 39 of chapter 24, a comparison with the flood account. Um, where you see specific reference of the wicked being taken or swept away. This is what he says. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven or the son, but only the father. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. As in those days before the, uh, the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. And so it will be with the coming of the son of man. There two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know what day your Lord is coming. I grew up believing that you didn't, that you wanted to be left, that you didn't want to be left behind, right? That you wanted to be taken. This passage says the opposite. It says the wicked are taken and swept away as in the flood and the righteous are left behind. Matthew 13 says the same thing in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, especially in verses 40 and 43. You see that what is taken is all that are evil and all causes of wicked, wickedness and the righteous are left behind and shine like the sun. First Thessalonians 4, uh, the picture of the rapture that we have. Um, it says that, um, that we will all be taken up to meet those who are, are dead in Christ who come, uh, who's coming to earth. The picture is actually of a conquering king returning from battle. The whole city goes out to join this conquering king and ushers him back in with cheers back into his home city. So yes, we'll be caught up in the air, but only to meet our king, to have our bodies transformed and to usher him back to, as he sets up his new heavens and his new earth right here. Death is swallowed up in life. A couple more passages. Second Peter 3, again, the context is the flood, which was a cleansing with water. 
And Jesus says now, Paul says now we're told the second coming is going to be another cleansing, this time with fire, which is a much stronger cleansing agent, a purifying agent, so that all will be dissolved, um, cleansed with fire, as in the burning away of all that's evil, all that's bad, leaving only what is pure and good. Hebrews 12 speaks of a final shaking so that only what cannot shake in will remain. And finally, in Revelation 20 and 20, 21 and 22, the opening verses of, uh, of these last two chapters says that there's gonna be a heavenly city that's gonna come down to earth. And he says, behold, I'm making all things new. Not, I'm making all new things. But I'm making all things new. Uh, the renewed is the idea here. The picture is the time when sin is done away with and a new heaven and earth finally meet as God sets up his kingdom in full. There's continuity in Revelation 21, 22 with Genesis 1 and 2. Some things are found in both places like the tree of life. There's gonna be continuity because God is redeeming all things, reconciling all things to himself. Now that raises a lot of questions. A lot of questions that people have been asking the last couple of weeks as we talk about the resurrection and as we've even studied some of this in our discipleship groups. My kids were actually asking me yesterday a question. Why, um, what ages will we be? Ask how old we're gonna be. A great question, right? And I, I told them, really, I don't know, but I can guess that in Genesis 1 and 2, what age were Adam and Eve created? They weren't created babies and they weren't created old people, but they were created in their prime. And the, the idea was that if sin and death had not entered the world, they would have continued to live right there in, in that way um, for eternity. So whatever prime age is to you, that's, that may be what we'll be. I know I've, I passed it, so it's probably several years ago, right? Um, what, will, what, will, what vocations will there be? Uh, we can think, man, we, we might be able to farm if you're into farming, Landscape design may be a great one. Um, worship leaders will be needed, right? But what about things like police? Will we need police in the new heavens and the earth? Well, not in the same way we need them now, not because there's crime, um, but maybe the same reason you needed an Andy Griffith in Mayberry to help people across the tr- street to serve and to protect. Uh, will we need government jobs? Well, it's hard to imagine sometimes government jobs without sin, right? But yes, I think we'll need them. They'll need to be government, right? Genesis 1 and 2 was to develop and to establish cities, which means roads and all sorts of other things that need to be governed. So there'll be need for governing authorities. Maybe a vocation you want to pursue in the new heavens and the new earth. Will there need to be health care? Well, not because people are sin. There won't be sickness, right? There won't be death. But there'll be need for nutrition and how do we take care and 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 uh, positivize, as one author said, it, our, our bodies in this world in which we live. What are good things to, to do and to eat and exercise? With the education, yeah, I think there'll be education. Um, not because our minds are darkened, because our minds will see things clearly for the first time. But we'll need to, to be discipled. I think Adam and Eve would have uh, discipled their kids, would have educated their kids on the things that they learned in their lifetime. Just, the point is, there'll be real things to put our hands to in the presence of God for eternity. How much continuity and discontinuity? Uh, again, I don't know. It's hard to imagine what things are going to be like without evil, without sin in the world. But one thing to ask, one question that's a great question to ask is, what would it look like if sin had never entered the world? Think about your vocation. Think about what you put your hands to on a day-to-day basis. Think about your home. Think about your backyard. 
what would that look like if sin had never entered the world? It's a fun, sanctified imagination exercise to do, to dream. What would it look like? And then how can we start to take steps to see his kingdom come, his will be done on heaven, on earth as it is in heaven? Why does this seem like a, seem like a new teaching? Why does it seem like a new teaching? Well, I think part of it is because we have read the Bible in terms of what we see and read back into the truths of Scripture rather than trying to read the truths of Scripture and interpret the things and the circumstances that we see. It matters the order that we get things. We look and we see a world that seems to be sin-sick, troubled, in so many ways broken. But Scripture takes in that, in that into account. And then it reads the resurrection into the story and it starts to twist and change things and give us a new trajectory on where things are headed when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. The biggest question, does it really matter? Does it really matter for when we wake up tomorrow and start our week? I think without this teaching, Christianity is gutted in a really significant way because most people I talk to in the world Uh, that aren't Christians struggle to see why Christianity and why Jesus matters. They look at the church and they see um, a a piety, a personal relationship type thing, which is is, is good. Don't hear me saying that's bad. That's a good thing. But they don't see how Christianity and Jesus makes any difference to the things that they care about on a day-to-day basis that they're giving themselves to. And the sad thing about that is this truth screams to the world that every created thing that matters to them is something that God himself has made and not given up on and cares about. He didn't make junk and he hasn't junked what he's made. He's instead redeeming every one of those areas. Your house, your vocation, your culture, your art, your music, your yard, your parks, all things we confess. Jesus is reconciling all things to himself and all things means all things. And what's also true is that the reason that they matter to us, the reason all of these things matter to us is because Jesus made them. Because they remind us of him, whether we acknowledge that and own that or not. When I go on trips without my family, it's hard not to read all of my experiences through their eyes. You know what I'm talking about? You're walking down the streets. We get to go with Michael, the armoring child, to London a couple of uh, Septembers ago to meet some of our, our partners. And I'm walking down the street, and all I'm thinking is, oh, man, my kids would love that store. Oh, Lynette would love to see this. Oh, I wish I could. I'm seeing it through their eyes. Listen, the reason these things get us excited to think about, to dream about what things are going to be like, is because they all smack, they all point to the lover of our souls that we love to be with. I'll never forget Jerem Barr sitting in a, um, a Borders bookstore talking about when the first, first when the Narnia movies came out. I'll never forget him listening to a lady who with tears in her eyes raised her hand at the question and answer time and said, what makes me sad is, and she was asking for, for, um, for forgiveness. She was saying, what makes me sad is I honestly would rather go to Narnia than to heaven. Is that wrong? And he looks at her back with tears in his eyes 
And he says, oh, sweet sister, that's not your fault. That's the church's fault because we haven't done a good enough job describing what it's gonna be like when Jesus returns and what the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be like. He said, you think it's gonna be, you think Narnia is great? <laughs> Just read the scriptures about the things that it says of what Jesus is gonna uh, institute and redeem and restore when he turn, returns. Beauty and the Beast is the best picture I've got of it. The end of the story, you know the story, the prince has turned into a beast um, because he's turned in on himself in selfishness. And what he needs is someone, something to break the curse. Sound familiar? And in the end, for their sacrificial love, the curse is broken and he is restored. He becomes a prince again and he's united to, to Baal. And that is the main thing. But it doesn't stop there. That reconciliation of relationship, that breaking of the curse, that transformation spawns a transformation of the entire kingdom. The gargoyles turn back into angels. The ottoman turns back into a dog. The cup, teacup turns back into a boy. Everything is changed. Jesus is the main thing. He's why our hearts even warm when we're talking about these things because they all echo of him. And yet that doesn't stop with him. When he comes back, all things are gonna be made new. And so we can put our hands to seeing his kingdom come as will be done on earth as it is in heaven knowing that he's the one that does the work. The hope we have is one of tangible restoration because Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead. Let's pray.